All right, uh, we are uh, in week 11, week 11 of uh, 1 Corinthians, life in the local church. Week 11, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our time together today, and thank you for the privilege we have of listening and hearing the word of God, being challenged. We pray that our hearts will be receptive to your word and what you're saying, and Give us understanding. May the Spirit illuminate our hearts and minds to the truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so we're looking at our quiz here. It's going to take my out. Paul advises slaves to remain as you are. True. True. I guess true, but it's not absolute, is it? <laughs> he says, if you can gain your freedom, it's okay. It's good. It's fine. Nothing wrong with that. The whole point of these remain as you are was you don't have to be concerned about that. That's not your first concern. You get saved. Your wife is unsaved. You don't. That's not the first concern. You don't have to say, "Oh, my wife's unsaved. I got to get a divorce." My husband's unsaved. I got to get a divorce. Or you know, my job or anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I work for Aaron. I don't have to quit. You know, you're what I mean? a big dumb. <laughs> no, I don't have to quit. You know? But if I work for Jackson Dawson, I gotta quit, right? That's, that's, that's the thing. That's, that's really the way it is. And then, two Christians are not obligated to keep the law of Moses as a legal system. True, we're not under the law as a legal system. It's not our constitution. It's not our governmental law. Now, there are moral principles in the law of Moses, and that moral principles are eternal, and they will continue on forever, like. Lying, stealing, things like that. Three, the Corinthians were pushing for engaged couples to marry as soon as possible. No. That was just the opposite. They seemed to be saying it might even be sin. And uh, they were suggesting, no, it might be sin. Paul says, uh, because of the present crisis, it might be good put it off for a time being and so forth but if you want to marry you can if you haven't sinned it's not it's not a question of sin as maybe the Corinthians were saying it's a question of what's the best in this particular circumstance we don't know all the details there in Corinth but it was some trouble some distress Paul instructs believers to only marry other believers true there's no you know, the, the strongest verses we have on that are this chapter 7 at the end where it talks about uh, the person who is unmarried and so forth a widow and so forth they can marry but they have to marry somebody in the Lord we assume if they have to marry somebody in the Lord Paul does talk about being unequally yoked together that's not exactly marriage but it's obviously an illustration of close relationships we don't want to be in very close personal relationships so that would seem to suggest uh, that we shouldn't normally uh, marry an unbeliever. Um, number five, Paul believes that singleness is spiritually superior to the married state. True. No, I he does. I don't think he does. I think he thinks it has advantages. That's and it's superior in a certain sense, but spiritually, in the sense you're on a higher plane, you're a better Christian. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, of course. You're spiritually superior. But I don't think Paul taught that. He thought that there were advantages 
as he mentions. The single person can devote themselves to the Lord and the married person has to be concerned for their wife and so forth. But Paul doesn't see it as a spiritual in the sense of you're a more spiritual person. That's what I was trying to get at anyway with that question in that sense. All right, so uh, we're looking at chapter 8. Does everybody have their notes here? Chapter 8, concern for... Our fellow believers, week 11, chapter 8. And I've tried to just kind of summarize maybe what Paul's, what Paul is ultimately getting at. Though, if you look at the title here, we're picking up a new section. So we had our introduction in verses 1 through 9. The first issue in chapters 1 through 4, 1 10 through 4, was these divisions, these different opinions in the church. And they were, uh, uh, following certain men, certain you know, I'm for Paul. I'm following Cephas. I'm following Apollos, and uh, putting on these people certain Greek wisdom ideas and philosophies and so forth. Paul is counteracting that. Then he deals in chapter five and six with problems communicated by a common rumor, uh, particularly the case of incest there in chapter 5 the problem in chapter 6 of taking each other to court over these petty little issues petty matters and in chapter 7 we looked at marriage and related matters the last two weeks um, because some of the Corinthians were saying that uh, because we are now married we should get divorced from an unbeliever Paul says no to that and we had various issues related there. Now we're taking up a new section that falls under this section of problems communicated by official letter. It's usually called a food sacrifice to idols. It takes us through chapters 8, 9, and 10. Now it says 11, 1 there. Most people think the chapter divisions here is wrong. Remember the chapter divisions were uh, done in the 13th century. Uh, so they're not inspired. <laughs> they were done. Uh, they were done uh, in the 13th century, and uh, so it may be that 11:1, as we'll see, it kind of goes better. Which it's a transitional verse, and chapter 11 picks up a new subject uh, about the head coverings. So it may be that 11:1 goes better with. Uh, but the, the original manuscripts, the oldest, don't have chapter divisions. They don't have diverse divisions or anything. These are man-made things we put in to try to help us uh, interpret and understand. So I say here, the issue that begins with 8.1 continues through 11.1. The new topic is what the NIV calls food sacrifice to idols, which is introduced by Paul's use of now about. The same expression we saw at the start of chapter 7. Remember chapter 7? Now about the things you wrote me. Remember, he's and he starts again, 8-1, now about. So it's now about, a, here's another matter you wrote about in your letter. You wrote about this food sacrifice to idols. So Paul is again responding to an issue from the Corinthians letter to him. Food sacrifice to idols is in this case primarily, if not exclusively, meat. Now it says food sacrifice to idols. This is one Greek word, adelophuton in Greek, that we're translating with all these words. And uh, 
it's, it refers to literally something sacrificed to an idol, which was usually meat. Usually some meat was put, and that's mainly what we're talking about here in this particular case. So sometimes you'll see it translated meat sacrificed to idols. That was the main thing they sacrificed in the idol temples. In the ancient world, meat was not commonly available and was expensive. Now that's true right up to the modern world. <laughs> you know, it was true 200 years ago. People didn't have a lot of meat to eat 300 years ago in, in, in cities and things. Most of the people in Corinth could eat, would eat meat mainly when they were at one of the pagan temples in the city. There were many temples in ancient Corinth, a multitude of temples to all kinds of gods and goddesses. <clears throat> These occasions would be state festivals honoring pagan gods, so you had gods that the state worshipped, that the government worshipped, that the, the Romans worshipped, that the Corinthians worshipped. They had their gods, the Romans had their gods. You honored all these gods. In the pagan world, you're a polytheist. You just add gods to your gods, and everybody accepts your gods. Um, so there were state festivals honoring pagan gods, feasts put on by trade guilds honoring their gods. So if you worked as a carpenter in uh, Corinth, you had your gods. Remember, the uh, in Ephesus, the god, the uh, people who made those little silver th things uh, to Diana, to Artemis, that Paul got in trouble with in Acts nine, Acts nineteen. They had their they had their goddess, oh, silversmith. Silversmith. They're evil. They are evil. They're evil. <laughs> Um, private celebrations such as celebrating the birth of a child. We actually have invitations <clears throat> that you can read where somebody is inviting somebody to the temple to celebrate uh, the birth of a child or a wedding. There weren't any, you couldn't rent, uh, you know, there were no restaurants in the ancient world. All this was done at the temples and so forth. So people went to these things all their life. The Corinthians had attended these celebrations in the temples all their lives. Even at a private celebration, sacrifices and worship of pagan gods was part of the event. So this is very hard because we'll see, Paul is coming to Corinth and says, you can't go to those pagan temples anymore. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you mean we can't go to the pagan temples? That's the center of our life. We go there. We've been going there all of our life. Paul's going to say no. Because it was idolatry. There was pagan worship. Now we know, we've got all kinds of documents here, we know at many of these festivals there was, uh, there was entertainment that was sexual in nature, both heterosexual and homosexual kind of entertainment. We know there was heavy drinking that went on at these feasts at various festivals and so forth. So there was a lot going on here that Paul would not support, but particularly the fact that you couldn't get away from the idolatry if you went to one of these temples. There was always food sacrifice. Even if you went there for your birthday of a child to celebrate the first birthday, you would sacrifice to the gods as part of this. But this is ultimately what gets Christians in trouble in the end of the first century, the second century, third century. It's what gets them killed. Because the Romans don't understand why the Christians will not celebrate their gods. Every other, when Romans conquered other people, those other people generally would just bring their gods with them. You worship the Roman gods, you can bring your gods. You know that's fine. The Romans didn't care if you worship Jesus. 
but you got to worship the emperor. You got to worship our gods. You got to sacrifice to the gods. Otherwise, you're not a good citizen. This is just, you know, this is the church and state together always. So if you're a good citizen, you've got to go to the temples. You've got to sacrifice to the gods. This causes problems. So those who were able to afford it could buy meat at the local meat market. Apparently, most meat that was sold in the marketplace in cities like Corinth was first offered as a sacrifice in in a pagan temple or shrine. Now, Jews were absolutely forbidden to eat any such meat in the meat market. So if you went out to the meat market and you bought some meat, it had probably first been dedicated to a to a god in the temple or a goddess in the temple, and you bought that meat there. But what wasn't consumed at the temple was sold in the meat market. The Jews were forbidden by the rabbis. You cannot eat that meat because they thought the meat itself was tainted. It wasn't what they call kosher, kosher, proper, fitting. So even today, Orthodox Jews only eat kosher food, food that's prepared in a special way and so forth. So uh, Jews were forbidden. But as we'll see, Paul is going to allow Christians to buy meat at the meat market and eat that meat, even if it came from a pagan temple. Because it's not the meat that, that, that's tainted that's the problem. It's the idolatry that we're talking about. And so Paul will say in chapter 10, eat anything sold in the meat market without asking questions of conscience. So he'll just say, just go ahead and buy the meat. Just eat it. Don't worry about it. There's nothing wrong with that. What Paul condemns in chapter 8 and following is food sacrifice to idols. This phrase, actually one word in Greek, has a very specific meaning which is meat sacrificed to an idol and eaten in the temple precincts. It does not refer to a sacrifice that has come from the temple and is eaten elsewhere. Paul allows Christians to eat meat that had been sacrificed in the temple if it was simply purchased in the meat market. Eat anything sold in the meat market without asking questions of conscience. That's chapter 10. But he strictly forbids the eating of meat sacrificed in a pagan temple as part of a pagan ritual. Eating food sacrificed to idols is wrong because it's essentially idolatry. The issue of food sacrificed to idols had been an issue a few years earlier at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where church leaders met to discuss the issue of circumcision for Gentiles. The decision was made that Gentile believers were not under the law of Moses but should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, same word as in 8.1 here, from blood, from the meat strangled to animals, and from sexual immorality because of the idolatry involved. Now, remember what's going on. Paul establishes this church in Acts 18. Acts 15 is years before. It's the year 49. So, you remember, Paul went out on his first missionary journeys, Acts 13 and 14. And he did something quite revolutionary. He took the gospel to people like you and me, Gentiles, who had no connection to Judaism. He didn't say, you've got to keep the law, you've got to keep the old commandments, you've got to worry about the food law. He just said, you just have to repent and believe in Jesus and you'll be saved and go to heaven. <clears throat> well, that was not how the Jews looked at it. Many Jews looked at it. So when Paul comes back to Jerusalem, some are saying, comes back to Antioch, 
Many are saying, hey, we don't agree with that. We think these Gentiles have got to keep the most... If they want to come in and be part of God's people, they've got to keep the Mosaic law. They've got The males have to be circumcised. That's just the way it has to be. They didn't understand, as we do, that we're, we've had a dispensational change here. That we're no longer under the law. That we're not, God's not dealing with Israel. He's dealing with the church now, particularly. Jew and Gentile in one body. So... Uh, Jews are joining us in this new organism, the church. And in this new church, we're not under the law. So they come back to Jerusalem, and they're trying to figure this thing out, and they decide, okay, that's right. Uh, Paul's converts are really saved. (laughs) You don't have to keep the law. You don't have to uh, be circumcised to be saved. And they had that council meeting in Acts 15, and they come to that decision. But they do say this. They say um, that the Gentiles should abstain from food, food sacrifice to idols, which is this idolatry we're talking about, from blood, from meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality. There's evidence that the choking of the sacrifice, strangling it, and drinking or tasting of its blood also took part in pagan temples. We can assume that Paul addressed this issue when he first evangelized Corinth in Acts 18, and his first letter to them mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. That is, they talk about it at the Council of Jerusalem. Paul agrees these Gentiles can't go to these temples That's, and have this food sacrifice to idols. I'm sure he mentioned it when he established the church. That's a tough, it's a tough one. <laughs> hey, you can't go to these temples anymore. And uh, I think he mentioned his first letter, as we'll see. From what we can gather from chapters 8 through 10, some of the Corinthians were rejecting Paul's earlier prohibition of going to pagan temples and the associated festivals, fest, festivities. They were apparently defending their right to go to a temple for a meal, arguing that idols do not really exist, which is true in a sense. There is no god named Zeus, you know. There is no Venus. There is no Aphrodite in reality. They don't actually really exist. So their argument is that it's okay to go to the temple because these idols do not really exist and food is irrelevant as far as our standing with God is concerned. Well, that's true too. Even in the Gospels, Mark chapter 7, it says, Jesus declared all foods clean. Remember, Jesus said there in Mark 7, it doesn't matter what goes into a person, it's what comes out that counts. And so right there in the Gospels, he's making an announcement that we've got to change here. The foods, all foods are clean. So this argument is based on their, quote, knowledge that there is only one true God, idols are not real, and food is morally neutral. Therefore, eating in the temples dedicated to the so-called gods is harmless. Now the problem, however, that, that's a, that it's going to be a problem, as we'll see, they're right about what they say, but the problem is when you go to the temple, you're still engaged in idolatry. And as we'll see when we get to chapter 10, Paul will say, these things, though they're not real, have something real behind them called demons. <clears throat> there are demons behind these idols. And when you worship these idols, you're worshiping demons. So you cannot go to the temple and so forth, even though these gods, in a sense, don't really exist as you think they exist. There are still demons, Satan, is behind this false worship and so forth. But they're going a step further and encouraging, apparently, causing or encouraging 
some who are called the weak here, to join them at these temples. And Paul says the lives of these weak are being destroyed and their moral consciousnesses were being defiled. We'll come to that. A common view of this section conceives of a quarrel between the weak and the strong in the church. The weak refused to eat food sold in the marketplace that had been first dedicated to pagan idols, while the strong saw nothing wrong with it. Paul is said to basically agree with the strong, the strong are correct, but they need to make allowances for the conscious of the weak, consciousnesses of the weak. But this view is quite is not quite correct. <clears throat> Paul never identifies any particular group as the strong, nor does he ever address the weak directly. So, in this section, chapter 8, Paul never identifies, he never uses the word strong, never uses the word strong, he never identifies the weak directly. And notice I said, some people consider this a quarrel between the weak and the strong. The weak refuse to eat food sold in the marketplace. Well, that's not the issue here. We're not talking about eating food in the marketplace. We're talking about eating food at the temple. At the temple. So I say this is not quite correct. Paul never identifies any particular group as the strong, nor does he address the weak. This misinterpretation comes from reading the problem in categories of Romans 14 and 15 back into Romans 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. So there are similarities between Romans 14 and 15, but there are big some, some differences here that we have to take note of. In Romans, Paul is concerned with restrictions in the law of Moses about food and days. So in Romans 14, Paul takes up a couple of issues that Jewish believers faced when they came to Christianity. In their Jewish faith, they were forbidding, they were forbidden from eating those ham sandwiches that, that you know the Gentiles love. And they had to observe certain days. So when they came to Christianity, they felt like we still should not eat those ham sandwiches and we should still observe those days. Paul calls them the weak in Romans chapter 14. Uh, the strong are those who say no. We don't have to observe uh, those food laws, and we don't have to observe those special days. The strong are right in Romans. Paul agrees with the strong. They are absolutely right. They've got the biblical position that we're not under the law. We don't have to keep the food laws. We don't have to observe these special days. So in Romans 14, Paul agrees with the strong. Now he's going to say we still have to make... We have to be concerned about the weak, as they'll say in Romans 14. But the strong are basically right. That's not true here. Paul doesn't mention the strong, but what we might call the strong, those who are saying we can eat at the temples, Paul says, no, that is wrong. He doesn't agree with that position in this particular case. Um, <clears throat> so, I say here, there Paul agrees with the strong that the food and the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament are not binding for Christians. But some Jewish... Believers are weak in faith. That is, they do not yet have the faith to believe that the Mosaic restrictions had been set aside. Thus, they believe to violate these restrictions would be sinning against God. There, Paul says, the strong who actually who are actually correct about what the Bible teaches must still curtail their liberties in these areas if their actions would cause their fellow believers to fall into sin. 
So what's happening in Romans 14 is Paul says these people, they still have not fully incorporated the idea that they're not under the law anymore. After all, I mean, how would you know? How do you know that you're not under the law anymore? The Jews are still there. We're still Jews. The temple's still standing. Why wouldn't we still have to obey these food laws and so forth? It's 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 not it's something that's going to take a while for them to to assimilate and so forth. And so uh, so they don't have the faith to believe that they're not under the law anymore. They're weak in faith. They have not assimilated that yet. And so Paul says it's wrong for them. Now he doesn't use the word conscience there as he does here, but it, it's, 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 it's very tightly in there in the sense of that's what we're talking about. Paul says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Whatever you do that doesn't come from faith is sin. Now what does that mean? That means whatever action you take, you have to believe that it's the right thing. You have to believe in faith. You have to. You don't want to violate your conscience here. And if your conscience says this is wrong, you don't want to violate your conscience, even if you're wrong. <laughs> so here are these people who say, "I just, I just can't handle those ham sandwiches." And uh, Paul would say, "Okay, the strong should not force you to eat those ham sandwiches because." The people who are eat, the, the weak, they think they're sinning against God. And they are sinning against God. If we believe we are sinning against God, then our desire is to sin against God, you know? So uh, we shouldn't force people, Christians, to go against their conscience. Now, their conscience needs to be educated. We'll talk about that in a moment. Our conscience needs to be informed by the Bible and so forth like that. But Paul is very strong about this idea of going against your conscience. So, uh, we, uh, we might compare this, this problem to uh, when missionaries first came to countries like Papua New Guinea. The, they came there and they converted these people, and the missionaries there wanted the new converts in their worship to use their traditional musical instruments. And one of the instruments they wanted to use was a drum called the Kandu drum. And they wanted they wanted, they wanted these newcomers. Okay, you know, use your instruments. You, you played the guitar before. Use your you know use your use your drum. Play your drum. They they just wouldn't do it. These new converts just couldn't do it because they said every time we hear those drums, we think of the spirits, the evil spirits. That's how we drew the evil spirits to us. So we just we just can't. It just seems like we're sinning to do this kind of thing. So they they didn't make them. Now later on. Later on, generations later, they use those drums because that that association with that evil spirits is totally gone. Now. It's not it's not an association, but they didn't they shouldn't violate their conscience about that as they sing it as a sin against God. I say here, but in First Corinthians eight through ten, the situation is somewhat different. The problem is not food per se, but eating in a pagan temple. This is what the Greek word translated food sacrifice to idols means, eating meat in a pagan temple. For Paul, this is idolatry pure and simple. And he absolutely rejects the Corinthians' view that attendance at the temples of Corinth is acceptable. In chapter 10, he will forbid it. The word strong does not occur in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. There is no strong position that Paul agrees with. 
That is biblically correct, as there is in Romans 14. In other words, the so-called strong in 1 Corinthians 8 are biblically wrong, whereas the strong in Romans 14 are biblically correct. Though they are wrong in not caring for the spiritual well-being of their brothers and sisters. The situation in 1 Corinthians is similar in the sense that the well-being of the weak is being disregarded by those Corinthians who are influencing them back into idolatry. All right. So we're looking at the basis of Christian conduct here, love, not knowledge. We're looking at uh, the way of uh, love. Um, well, no, we're not quite there yet, are we? Let's look at the first section. The basis of Christian conduct, love, not knowledge. As we noted, Paul had probably already forbidden the Corinthians from going to, to pagan temples in his previous letter. And he will finally forbid it in the strongest possible terms in chapter 10 where he explains that demons are the source of idolatry. But his first concern here in chapter 8 is with the incorrect ethical basis of the Corinthians' argument in favor of such behavior. In other words, going to the, these pagan temples is absolutely wrong, but the Corinthians' theological arguments used to justify going are also wrong. That is, what Paul will deal with first, this is what Paul will deal with first, he wants the Corinthians to ultimately flee from idols, but Paul also wants them to see the theological implications of their behavior and the need for the principle of love to guide all their behavior. Paul will forbid the Corinthians from attending pagan temples in chapter 10 because idolatry harms the individual. Here in chapter 8, Paul is concerned with the harm attending pagan temples does to one's brother or sister who observe it observes it, and could thus be tempted to return to their previous idolatry, as we'll see in 8.10. The heart of the problem is primarily their attitude. The Corinthians think, the Christ, think Christian conduct is based exclusively on knowledge, and that knowledge gives them the right to act as they will in this matter. For them, knowledge gives power, and power gives freedom and rights. But Paul has another view here, and that is that the content of their knowledge is only partially correct, as we said. Because they say these gods aren't real, that's true in an absolute sense, but there are demons behind there. So their knowledge is not exactly correct. But more importantly, knowledge is not what should primarily motivate Christian behavior. Love should. That is what is best for others should motivate our behavior toward our fellow brothers and sisters. True Christian freedom is not freedom to do what we please or please ourselves. It's to do what pleases God. Um, so if we really love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not going to create a, a situation that would cause them to sin. We're not going to tempt them. We're not going to cause them. In this case, the case of idolatry. Okay. The way of love and the way of knowledge. Paul starts out here. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. As Paul has done previously in this letter, he begins by citing the Corinthians' letter to him. Notice the quotation marks. We know that, quote, we all possess knowledge. This is a quotation from their letter. Otherwise, Paul would be contradicting himself since in 8.7, he says not everyone possesses this knowledge. 
This knowledge is the knowledge that idols have no real existence. To the Corinthian position, we all possess knowledge. Paul, in effect, says no. Knowledge, Paul says, puffs up. Puffs up the individual. So knowledge can lead to pride. It puffs up. But that's not true of love. Not only does love not puff up, but it's the opposite. It builds up, Paul says. It edifies the person. It strengthens them. Paul's thought here is probably similar to what he'll say in 13.2. If I have all knowledge, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. 8.2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Verses 2 and 3 further qualify the idea we all possess knowledge in verse 1. Paul's point is that the one who thinks they are in the know, by the very fact, has given evidence that they are self-deceived, and true knowledge has eluded them. In our common parlance, we might use the expression, this guy thinks he's something. Paul means that if certain uh, Corinthians think they have attained to some degree of knowledge, they have not yet reached the status when they have knowledge at all in the real sense of the word, Paul is saying. True Christian knowledge is inseparable from love, he says. As verse 3 will explain, ultimately, that uh, as explains here, uh, love is ultimately rooted in love for God. He says in verse 3, but whoever loves God is known by God. In verse 3, you might expect Paul to say, whoever loves God has real knowledge. Because he says in first part, verse 2, those who think they know something don't yet know as they ought to know. We'd expect him to say, but whoever knows God, that's the person who has real knowledge. The knowledge of God comes first. Instead, we read, is known by God. I say this is, however, in accord with Paul's language elsewhere. Compare 13, 12. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Galatians 4, 9. But now that you know God, or rather you are known by God, in other words, Paul corrects himself. He says, but now that you know God, we say it all the time, I know God, but Paul won't let that stand. No, rather, God knows you. God's love comes first. Remember 1 John four nineteen. We love God. Why? Why do we even have any love for God? Because he first loved us. He did something first in us. His grace touched us first. So true Christian knowledge is inseparable from love, which can be produced only by God's prior choice in us, is what Paul is getting at here in verse 3. Paul basically agrees with the Corinthians' knowledge about idols, which he will take up in the next three verses. But Paul's problem is that what the Corinthians are doing with their knowledge is wrong. So he's begun here in his discussion in verses 1 through 3 by qualifying their understanding of knowledge itself. <clears throat> Christian behavior is not ultimately based on knowledge, which can lead to pride and destroys others, but on the way of love, which is in fact the true way of knowledge. And he'll spell this out in greater detail here in verses 7 through 13, and especially chapter 13. The content of the way of knowledge, verses 4 through 6. With this paragraph, Paul resumes what he began in verse 1 after this short qualifying discussion about the way of love superseding the way of knowledge in verses 2 and 3. Again, he quotes from the letter, in this case, with two statements affirming monotheism in verse 4. So then, about eating, 
food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and there is no one but God. Paul begins as in verse 1, we know that, which means he's affirming as true what the Corinthians have said. The two statements together form a strong affirmation of monotheism. An idol is nothing at all in the world and there is no God but one. So these statements argue not only is there only one God, but a denial that the other gods have any reality at all. And the Corinthian argument here, remember, is since the idols don't have any reality and there's only one God, then how can we be faulted for going to the temple and eating meals there in the temple of Aphrodite since Aphrodite doesn't really exist? What's the problem here? But as a matter of fact, this premise is only partly true. As Paul will explain in chapter 10, as I said, verses 19 and following, he'll argue that demons are ultimately behind the idolatry. But Paul has a different concern here right now, and that's a practical concern about the effect that believing in idols has on those who worship him, worship them. So he's concerned about, you know, okay, we I know the idols don't exist except there are demons behind them, and I'm gonna when I get to chapter ten, I'm gonna slap you down pretty hard on that. But right now I want you to see what the effect is of worshiping these idols. Verse five. For if even if these there are so called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came, and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. Paul now explains with this four that begins verse five, that even if there are so-called gods, they do not really exist. That is, they don't actually exist in the form the pagans worship them. There is, there is actually no real Zeus. Nevertheless, they do in a sense exist in the subjunctive sense that people believe them to exist and worship them. These so-called gods were commonly designated gods when referring to the traditional gods of the Greco-Roman religion, Zeus, Aphrodite, Hera, uh, Hermes, and lords for the deities of the mystery religion. So as Rome expanded, it incorporated various, especially in the East, it picked up a lot of other people. They had their religions, they had their gods, Isis, and so forth. So they just incorporated those right into the Roman system, built temples in Rome to them, usually outside the city, but still they incorporated them. Um, Yet, Paul says, verse 6, even if there are so-called gods, for us Christians there is but one god. That, that is one true God in the universe. But this one God includes both the Father, who is the source from, of, uh, from the source of all things. Uh, you know, he says, uh, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come. So there's one God, the Father, who is the source from all things. Uh, of all things, and for whom we must live our lives. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the agent through, uses a different preposition here, through whom all things came into being, and through whose work on the cross we live. So we're getting a little bit of Trinitarian theology here. 
Remember, the Father is the source, the originator of things. Christ is the, he, he does it through the Son. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning through him, that is through the Word, the Son, all things were made. So he's the real, actual one who, through whom God created and so forth. We're seeing that sort of language here, through whom, through whom. So in the last part of the verse here, um, Paul uh, places the work of Christ in the closest proximity to God himself. Paul can say on one hand, there's only one God, but he equally affirms that the designation Lord, which in the Old Testament, you know, is confined to Yahweh. Here, O Israel, the Lord, Jehovah Yahweh, our, our God, the Lord is one. So Paul picks up that Lord. If Jesus ain't God, it's blasphemous to say Lord. And Paul calls him Lord here. To, uh, picking up that Old Testament Deuteronomy 6.4 and other passages, obviously. So Paul feels no tension here, notice, between the monotheism, we believe we're monotheist, in the sense there's one God, one God, but one God with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's the kind of statements we see, that things come through Jesus, through him he created, through him he redeemed. God the Father is the source, but Son is the thing is through whom these things are mediated. The criterion, care for a brother, verses 7 through 13. In verses 7 through, 10, through 13 here, Paul returns to this discussion about the way of knowledge that he started back in verses 1 through 3. Paul's now going to explain that, uh, in theory, all believers should know that idols are not real and that there's only one true God. But he's going to say, not all believers share this knowledge in an experiential way. Before they became Christians, um, these people were pagans, and they firmly believed those gods existed. They worshipped them. They believed them. And so it's now it's not easy for them just to toss those beliefs aside. If they go to the temple, they still think about those beliefs. It tends to it still uh, it still informs their experience, and so they have what Paul calls a weak conscience. Um, and the attendance of this pagan temple, Paul says, has the effect of destroying them. Verse seven. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. So contrary to the Corinthians' claim that we all possess knowledge, Paul says that's not true of all believers at Corinth. Not everyone possesses this knowledge, he says. Even though all believers may believe at the theoretical level that an idol is no god, not all share this knowledge at the experiential, emotional level. Some are still accustomed, still so accustomed to idols that it's not easy to disregard their old religious experiences with the pagan gods. 
For these believers to return to the place of their former worship would mean once more to eat meat as though it were truly being sacrificed to the God. And the result would be that since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. I say here, conscience refers to our moral moral consciousness of what is right and wrong. So we're born with a conscience because we're in the image of God. But the conscience is uh, sort of like a pinprick, you know. When we do something wrong, it pricks us. We feel, and but but the knowledge of what is right, what is what is right and wrong, can vary, can depend. Now we're, we we Paul says in Romans two, we're created in God's image, so we have a moral code implanted in us from the beginning. But it can be perverted. It can be distorted. We can think that we can we can be taught that right is wrong and wrong is right, you know. So a person's conscience can be perverted and twisted. The truth is, our consciences always need to be calibrated by the Word of God. Even if our conscience says it's right and the Word of God says it's wrong, it's wrong. And if our conscience says it's wrong and the Word of God says it's right, it's right. <laughs> now we still don't want to go against our conscience, but we we need to have our conscience informed and taught and learned. So we want to calibrate it by the word of God. So uh, here we're saying the conscience refers to our moral conscience of what is right or wrong. But the conscience needs a source for its moral judgments. Thus the correctness of its judgments depends on the source it draws from. Ideally we should calibrate it by the word of God. In this case the weakness involved is that for some believers at Corinth the belief that there was only one God had not yet been fully incorporated into their moral consciousness. If they return to the cultic meals in the pagan temples and eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, that is, a real pagan god. This would produce moral confusion and would ultimately lead them, or could lead them, back into idolatry. The point is that even if it were true that feasting in pagan temples was allowable because the pagan gods do not really exist, it would still be wrong because of what it does to one's fellow believer. This believer's eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Verse 8, But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and better if we do. Verse 8 reflects the what the Corinthians were arguing in their letter. It is also in full agreement with Paul's own point of view. Paul believed that the Christians are not under the Mosaic law and do not have to observe the food laws. So this is similar to what he says about circumcision. Remember, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Circumcision, we're not under the law anymore. When Christ needs a circumcision or ongoing circumcision has any value, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision, you know. So this is a similar idea we're talking about here. Neither brings us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat or better if we do. This is part of the freedom or rights we have as Christians. But as we'll see in verse 9, this freedom can be abused. Verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. But Paul warns the Corinthians need to be careful because insistence on their rights can lead to devastating effects on their fellow believers 
who do not share their knowledge. The idea of rights or freedom was probably a favorite term of the Corinthians, as you saw in 6.12, where Paul quotes them as saying, I have the right to do anything. That is the right, the freedom to act as we please without regard to others. Paul agrees with them on the food laws, but warns them that this cannot be carried over to eating sacrificial food in the temples of the city, since that would become a stumbling block to the weak. The term stumbling block refers not to something that simply offends someone else, but that causes a person to be led into sin, which in this case is idolatry. For the Corinthians, knowledge means rights to act. It means freedom. So for them, freedom is the highest good, you know, like modern Americans. (laughs) Freedom, autonomy, what I want to do, that's the most important thing. Don't listen to anybody, just listen to your heart. That's the most nonsensical thing that's ever been said, but it's said on every TV show and every movie that's being produced. Just listen to your heart. Yeah, the heart is kind of wicked, as somebody said one time. Somebody said that, didn't they, I think, in the Bible? (laughs) So freedom is the highest good for them. It's the exaltation of the individual. For Paul, the opposite prevails. Love means freely giving up of one's rights for the sake of others. Verse 10. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? In the previous verse, Paul has warned that the Corinthians are not to use their rights so as to harm the weak. For, he now explains, if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Thus it is clear that those who claim to have knowledge expressed in verses 1, 4, and 7 are going to the cultic meals in the temple dining halls and were using that knowledge as justification to probably countermand Paul's previous instruction about not going to the pagan temples. Paul's point here is that even if they will not accept Paul's previous instructions, they should at least refrain based on what their knowledge could do to someone with a weak conscience. An individual with a weak conscience, Paul says, might happen to see a Christian they esteem eating in an idol's temple and be persuaded, okay, this is okay. This is harmless and I can do it. So they would be encouraged to go back and then they could easily fall back into idolatry at the temple again. And they would be emboldened. (laughs) Paul is probably using something ironic here because the word emboldening means to edify. He says, and that person will be edified to eat. You know, that's, that's, (laughs) I mean, it's it's a sarcastic use of that. He doesn't, they're not going to be edified. This is terrible. They're going to be built down. But he's, you know, we're translating emboldened. They'll be challenged to just do what is wrong here. Verse 11. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So Paul explains, the ones with knowledge are not acting in love toward their weak brother or sister, but instead they are being harmed by your weak knowledge, by your knowledge. Paul is thinking of the harm done to the conscience of the weak, possibly resulting in a former idolater falling back into the grips of idolatry. Verse 12. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. This verse brings to a close the present argument about giving a theological, by giving a theological expansion of the point of verse 11. The actions of those with knowledge in verses 10 and 11 are now declared by Paul to be sin. 
to sin against a brother or sister for whom Christ died is in effect to sin against Christ himself. So the ultimate wrong of those with this, quote, knowledge is not simply that they lack true knowledge. That's true. They lack true knowledge because they don't know the de- they don't see demons behind this. Or even that they're responsible for harming a brother and a sister. That's wrong too. Bad as that is. But he says you're sinning against Christ. And if you sin against Christ, don't you shouldn't be doing this, right? That's a prohibition, obviously. Verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. The therefore is a very strong inferential conjunction suggesting Paul is bringing this opening argument about food sacrificed to idols and attendance of the pagans' temples to his conclusion. This is what he wants to get across in this section. He closes with a general principle that he himself follows that goes beyond the particular issue of going to meals in a temple. Now he says, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, it doesn't say if what I eat offends them. They they don't like it. We're talking about this causes a person to fall into sin, what I'm doing, eating this. I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Now this is hyperbole, but it serves to make the point that Paul is willing to go this far for meat in general. You know, I'm willing to just give up meat if that's necessary. To, I just don't want to do anything that would cause my brother or sister to fall into sin, to lead them into sin, to cause them to sin. So how much more should the Corinthians be willing to give up eating meals in idle temples? In reality, the issue of attendance of the pagan temples is really just a symptom of a more basic problem. That is, insisting on their rights or freedom to do as they please in the name of knowledge. But Paul has emphasized from the beginning that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. It's primary love that is the proper concern for the spiritual well-being of our fellow believer, our sister in Christ. That should determine our ethical behavior not our own rights or freedom. All right.